Welcome to today's episode of TAPCAST. I'm your host, Chloe Warziniak. Today, my guests are Dr. Dan Stern-Cardinal and Dr. Christy Beal. We sit down to discuss the recent transformation of the Intro Biology course at Rutgers. I asked them about the process of transformation and what the course looked like before and after transformation. We discuss what provided the push to transform the course and how that's been incorporated into the process of what it looks like now. They tell me about the iterative process that they're going through and how the course is never really fully finished and they're always improving. Finally, they offer some advice and insights for other departments with mega courses who are either interested in transforming their own courses or maybe just in incorporating a little bit more active learning into their existing courses. Let's get started. To start off, could both of you tell us a little bit about your background and your current role at Rutgers? Want to start? Sure, I'll start. Um, I have a PhD from University of Delaware in entomology. And as I was earning my PhD there, I was part of a funding program that was looking to, to get grad students out and talking about their research in a way that regular people could understand. So it was about changing your language so people could understand research. And I, I fell in love with that. They let me teach as part of that. Um, I worked with everything from high school students to graduate students and everything in between. And so when I graduated and got my PhD, I, I found that I really, really wanted to teach, not, not as much research. And so I worked um, in local community colleges for a while. I had a lot of opportunity to work with just a few students. And then I came here, and I have an opportunity to work with a lot of students. Um, I'm one of the GenBio instructors for the GenBio 115-116 course, which is one of the massive courses on campus. Um, so I came to Rutgers to do my master's degree after I graduated as an undergrad um, in 2009, because there was literally nothing else to do in the summer of 2009, uh, except go to grad school. Um, and so I started as a master's student, and I had to pay for that somehow. And the way to do that turned out to be a general biology TA. And by uh, of about October of that first semester, I realized, wow, I really like teaching. Oh, I'm going to have to stay here for a long time, aren't I? So I switched over to the PhD program and did my PhD in molecular genetics and microbiology here at Rutgers and was a general biology TA the whole time for the whole six years. And then um, as luck would have it, there were some rearrangements going on in the course right as I was graduating. So I defended my thesis and a week later interviewed for this job and then just became one of the general biology instructors the following year. And uh, that's now we're in the fourth year of that. So maybe to lay the foundation for the conversation, could you tell us a little bit about what the course looked like pre-transformation? I'm going to let Dan do that because that yeah, was here. Yeah, I was here for uh, a number of years pre-transformation. So there were two really big differences. Uh, the first is that everybody in the, it was at the time 101, 102, there was a lab attached to that. So rather than be uh, like a practice time like we have now with the workshop, it was extra material on top of the lecture material. The other really big difference was that the different lectures were not coordinated with each other. So you actually had different exams across the different campuses. So the students taking the course on Bush got a different exam from the students taking the course on Douglas because there were different instructors and it was essentially two separate courses under the same course number. Uh, so 
in terms of a consistent experience, which is what we're really trying to go for now, you didn't have that pre-transformation. So what does the course look like now? Uh, and maybe you could tell us sort of generally speaking, and then we can dive into the various components of it. Well, generally now, for, from the lecture point of view um, and, and from exams, we're completely coordinated. So uh, we meet every week, uh, sometimes more than once a week, and we go over everything that's going to be on the lectures, what we're going to talk about, we make sure we're consistent, and that way we can all give exactly the same exam across the, what, 2,000 students in the course. They're all having a very similar experience in lecture. Um, they, they know what the same expectations are, and so they have a very similar experience taking the exam, and that's um, the, the upfront preparation of that means that we know ahead of time what we're going to stress and how to make connections, but it also means the students can expect what's going to happen to them from course day to course day and also what to expect on everything from the first to the final exams. They have a lot of prep. Yeah, everything is laid out from the beginning in the, in the, you know, the syllabus at the beginning of the semester. It's not just what are we going to talk about on each day. It's here are the things you're going to need to be able to do with that material on each day. And because we're coordinated, we can say that from day one. So you know exactly what you're going to have to do on the final on the first day of class. And that doesn't matter if you're in my room or Christy's room or if you're in the off-sequence course with Dr. Ann Keating, who's the third person that does the general biology lectures. It's all the same. So my understanding is that a big component of the transformation was incorporating more active learning in the course. Could you talk a little bit more about where that active learning shows up? Yeah, so the active learning component is the workshop, which replaced the lab for what is now 115, 116 when we did the transformation. So the lab is now spun off into a standalone course, which is 117. And replacing that for 115 and 116 are these weekly 80-minute sessions where the students go. And basically, it's an opportunity for them to work with their peers in, in anywhere from small teams of three to five to the whole room to practice the material uh, under the guidance of one of the TAs for the course. The TA in the room is just facilitating. They're just guiding the process, but they're not actually reviewing anything. They're not providing any information. They're just kind of keeping the students on track as they work through the material themselves. Could you elaborate a little more on what the role of the TA is in this course? Are they, are, are they writing the worksheets? Um, are, they, are, are they grading? What, what, what are they doing? Yeah, so... In a lot of ways, the TAs are the most important part of the course because across all the different aspects to it, there are over 30 TAs. And as we said, one of the most important things is all the students getting a consistent experience. So we have this giant pool of workshop facilitators and every week we meet so that we kind of go over, we go through what we're gonna do the next week in workshop. And week to week, the schedule is the same. So uh, it starts with questions that the, that the students are going to answer that are graded. So it starts with an assessment. And then, so the students will organize the material in an outline format, and then they'll actually, uh, what we call, make organizers. So things like tables or flowcharts, and then present them to each other, present them to the class. And the TA's role in this is to guide the students through the process and to ask leading questions so that when there's a discussion happening, when there is something that one of the students is speaking, they're unsure about something, the TA is not providing the information, they're guiding the rest of the room to find the information so that it's all coming from the students ultimately, which is a much more effective way to learn than just having someone explain it to you a second time. They've already done that part in the classroom, now it's their job to work through it 
themselves, and that's going to that's going to be much more effective. So one of the common threads that I find with uh, talking about these kinds of active learning ideas is that student buy-in can be a challenge. Um, so you said that they have mini assessments at the beginning, mm-hmm. and then they have a larger like exams, right? Mm-hmm. So how do those tie together, and, and how do you convince students that they should care about these workshop sessions uh, when, uh, in many cases, their uh, focus is very much uh, towards exams? I guess I guess there's two answers to that. Um, the assessments that we give them, they, they have two ways of doing it. They have a think pair a think pair share version where they they have a chance to answer a question and then discuss and then answer the question again. And then they have a more of a quiz type where they're on their own. Those are very, very similar, if not almost exactly the same as the exam questions. So it gives them a chance to see something that will be on the exam, which they are on their own for, um, and practice that. The organizers that we have them do are basically little cheat sheets. So we teach them how to think about the material as it's connecting to other pieces of material. And it does take a little bit to, to sell that because they want to just practice the questions. But what we do is we, we practice with them, and the TA practices with them in workshop, going through that organizer, and then how, do you, how would you answer a question that maybe you hadn't seen before, and using that thing that you've created, a logic map, to then think even further outside of the box. And, and once they get it, they get it. And it's a, it's it's different. It's a different way of thinking. But I, I think that once they see the connection, it's it's an easy sell. So would you say that at the beginning it takes some work, but eventually they see the value and they buy in? Yeah, I, I think that the, the TAs have a very difficult job on that because they're the ones on the front lines that are are selling this. It's like really, it's going to work. I promise it will work. Um, but then they get the the benefit of being on the other side when the students see that and then they love their TAs back. Yeah, a lot of the challenge that we deal with every year is the buy-in from the students is, okay, we're, we're trying to lay this out in a rational way. Here's what we're telling you in class. Here's what we're telling you up front, what you're going to have to do with it on the exam. And now we have these workshop sessions where we're practicing doing those exact things. So we've tried a bunch of different ways over the years of making it crystal clear what the connection is between those activities and the questions you're going to see on the exam to the point where we've started incorporating kind of dummy exam questions into the workshop and saying, okay, you just made a flowchart. Here's a question. Can the information on that flowchart be used to answer that question or is it not complete enough? And those questions are exactly the same format that we see on the exam. We just change the words around a little bit. You mentioned that you meet with all of the TAs once a week. I'd be interested in hearing more about first what those meetings look like. What, what do you talk about? How do you how do you prepare for the week? Um, but then also more generally, how do you prepare your TAs? Especially, for example, I, I don't know if you have TAs who maybe are, are teaching for the first time and have never been in the classroom, and, and and how do you help prepare them for that? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the big challenges is having so many TAs uh, and so many uh, first year TAs. Uh, Often it's first semester of grad school, also first time TAing. Um, But that's also one of the big strengths that we have because with uh, it's a little over 30 TAs every semester, everyone finds little things that work for them. And part of what we always try to do is draw out those little innovations and see if we can implement them universally. 
Uh, so what we actually do now is largely based on innovations that individual TAs have come up with over the course of now you know many, many semesters of this. Uh, it's largely based on just what TAs have come up with. So um, the way these weekly sessions work, there's two main purposes. One is that um, myself and the head TA team, uh, which is a uh, head TA and two assistant head TAs that are working behind the scenes with logistics and leadership for the TAs, um, for all the, the, I should say, the workshop facilitators, um, we kind of walk through the workshop as though we are the facilitators and the rest of the TAs are the students. But then it's almost like a scrimmage in that we could say, okay, pause. What are going to be the hard parts? What's going to be the sticking points at each thing? How can we guide the students through these hard parts? How can we kind of draw the answers out of them to keep the discussion where we want it to go? So we go through each aspect of the workshop, including the, the, the multiple choice questions, the outlining, making the flowcharts and presenting them. And it's the TAs that are all doing this. And then we have a discussion as a group, all you know, 30, however many of us there are, uh, about where um, students are going to want to ask questions, what they're going to have an easy time with, what they're going to have a hard time with, where you're going to run out of time and need to make sure you keep things moving. And a really instrumental part of this is the TAs who have done this before coming back. So every year it's anywhere from about a quarter to a half of the TA pool has done general biology in the past. So when we have these discussions, they can offer their expertise of, well, last year, this is where all the students got stuck. This is how we we're able to get through it. So now the following week, the new TAs don't have to figure that out for themselves. They have an idea of exactly what they ought to be doing to kind of break through what the most likely sticking points are going to be. So, so all of the TAs have the same uh, workshop every week. Or, or in a given week, all of the TAs for that week have the same workshop, right? Yep. So... One of the big things you've both been talking about then is is that uniformization across all the sections. Um, but at the same time, they they still the lectures are still at different times, and you have different groups of students in the lectures. And if you have the same workshop that's sort of predetermined, uh, and you're in one lecture, and there's some great questions or or students are really engaging and, and you want to follow that thread but then you don't get through all the material you need uh but then they have the workshop that week i mean how, how do you balance that that potential for uh spontane spontaneity but still needing to get through all the material and the uniformization that never happens that's, that's me it's, it's me every time um, so we, we, that's part of why we need to coordinate. And, and um, so I, I frequently have really good questions or I have a little bit of a tangent. And we do have, we have some play in our lectures. So there's a little bit of time. We, we know where students are going to ask the big questions. But then there's always that student that comes up with the best question ever and you, you have to address it. Um, we, we keep the TAs in the loop. If we didn't quite get to something, um, we, we can address that. But... Uh, we, we're pretty good at, at keeping up, at, at least with the main ideas, because we know what's going to be expected of them because we have that list of outcomes that they're responsible for. And I think we're, we're a little flexible. Yeah, absolutely. And um, there are two things that work in our favor when it comes to that um, in terms of the transformation. One is that we've tried to emphasize that even though we're teaching the course in 80-minute chunks, two lectures a week, it really is just one continuous flow of material. So if we, you know, 
missed the last five minutes or last 10 minutes and we start the next class with that, that's okay. It all flows together. We don't want the students to kind of silo their information. We want it to be considered as one continuous unit across the whole semester. So if we add or subtract 10 minutes here or there, that's fine. The other thing is that within the workshops, the students are only going to practice a tiny fraction of what they're responsible for every week. So if we have, in a given week, we say, okay, these are the three outcomes we're going to work on in workshop this week, and one of us doesn't get to one of them, that's okay. You practice the two that we did get to, or you pull another third one that we wouldn't otherwise practice in workshop. As a student, it's your responsibility to practice all of this stuff before the exam anyway. We're just kind of getting you started in workshop. So if there's one thing that's not going to be there in a given, you know, maybe, you know, one day a week, someone, one of the sections is missing something. That's okay. That's totally fine because the students are still going to have to practice it on their own. The job of the workshop is not to kind of study with the students to completion for the topics that we cover. It's just to get them started. And the hope being that they're going to continue doing that stuff on their own outside of workshop. I'd like to go back for just a second um, and talking about the training for the TAs. And I wonder if uh, you've had any trouble with TA buy-in. And, you know, maybe a TA comes in and says, oh, well, well this is how I learned it, and, and you're making me do it this other way, and it's, it's a lot more work, and, and why should I do it that way? We could just do it the way that I've learned. And uh, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, have you had that problem? And if so, uh, how have you uh, convinced your TA that this is, this is uh, a good option? Uh, yeah, there are, um, and just to clarify in case anyone's curious, so my my kind of specific role within the course, um, and this is kind of background, but it's useful for understanding the discussion, is that um, Christy, myself, and Anne, we each have kind of sub-specific roles within the course. So Christy deals with the assessments and the exam preparation. I'm the workshop director, and Anne is on the curriculum side, primarily. So um, when it comes to like workshop and TAs, that's kind of where I am week to week. So we do occasionally have challenges with buy-in from the TAs, uh, and that can be in a couple of different ways. Sometimes there are TAs that have done other courses and want to basically continue doing it that way. Uh, and there are also um, situations where TAs will go beyond what is required in GenBio in terms of the material. So again, one of the one of the uh, big benefits we have with such a large TA pool is that every week, no matter what we're covering, there's one or two people in the room that are experts on that specific thing. Uh, but the downside to that is occasionally they'll want to go beyond what we cover in general biology, and we have to kind of rein people in to make sure that some of the workshop sections that week are not getting more information than the rest of the course and more information than is required for general biology. Um, in terms of the TAs buying into the actual process, maybe you can comment, but I, I haven't seen that as as big an issue as you might expect. Um, there's a lot of benefit on the professional development side to approaching uh, TAing this way, um, and I think uh, uh, our TAs are really good at recognizing that, and our head TA team is uh, really effective, I think, at emphasizing that. Um, kind of in the, in the weekly prep and in the training at the beginning of the semester. So we have, sometimes there are difficulties with such a large TA pool, but on the whole, buy-in doesn't seem to be the big issue, which is nice. I think one of the things we tell the students, and that, that takes the students a little while to buy in, is, is this is how 
if you go to grad school or you're going on to, to med school, this is the way that those students study when they get there. And so I think that from the TA's point of view, it makes sense to do it this way already, and they're just kind of sharing that information. Because most of them already kind of organize their information that way. So it's, it's, it makes sense to most people. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to transition a little bit and talk about the actual process of transforming the course. Uh, so, so maybe to get started, could you tell us what provided the push to say, oh, we, sh- we should look at this course more carefully and, and, and maybe make some changes? Uh, so the big one was the publication of the um, AAAS um, report um, called the, uh, it was the Vision and Change Report which was about the, uh, what we need to be getting out of STEM education going forward. And now this report, it's coming up on eight or 10 years old at this point, I think, but the idea was that we're training our students in a specific set of skills, and then for the professions in those fields, they need a different set of skills. So we need to change up how we're training students. And the emphasis was on things like problem solving, collaborative learning, active learning, that kind of stuff. And um, which is very different from, okay, here's a list of things you need to be able to memorize that list of things and tell me that list of things a month from now. So um, when Dr. Transu became the course director, uh, he kind of led this effort to go from the old lecture model, which was different between the campuses, to the coordinated model that we use now, and then replace the lab with the workshop model that we use now. So it started as a two-year pilot with the workshop and then transitioned to the entire course in its third year. I think I have those numbers right. I have a quick follow-up question with regards to that, that last uh, piece you just said, splitting off this other course. Um, I, I don't know if you know, did that create any uh, extra challenges in the overall curriculum in terms of uh, students being able to graduate uh, with with all the credits they need? Because now there's, there's an extra course that they have to take that's more credits than they were b- before or it's an extra course right yeah it's a so the the lab right now is a standalone two credit course um i'm not sure in terms of things like prerequisites for different cl- i'm not exactly sure how that um affects things downstream from us the, the lab portion what they, and, and this was before i was here but when they pulled the lab and separated it it became the discussion of the scientific method and and applications whereas the lecture portion became how to learn how to apply your knowledge and so what you take as a student you take the gen bio 115 the first course you learn the kind of basic things you're going to talk about in lab and then in lab you you apply them with the scientific method and and think about them in a new way and and i think um that gave us the advantage of spending more time um, kind of coming up with, with how to study and how to learn within the course. And then applications can become its own very hands-on thing in the lab. So you mentioned a couple of dates before, but I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about uh, the, the timeline of the transformation and how long uh, was it sort of in design before it was piloted and now... Uh, it seems like it's been in the basic current structure for, for a little while, um, but I'm, I'm sure you've been tweaking with it. Um, so just, yeah, I'm interested in hearing more about the timeline and how long, how long these various stages took. Uh, I'm not sure specifically how long it was in the works before the pilot was implemented. Um, my suspicion is at least a year or two, um, but I don't know. I was I was I was a lowly TA at the time, so I don't have any insights into what was going on behind the scenes. 
from from my when I came in, it, the program was already it, it was already pretty solid. It was uh, every student took the the workshop model program now, um, but as I've been here over the last four. So this is our fourth year, our, and we, we both started. Year. Yeah, um, uh, the, the, it was two years before then that it was the full course. So uh, over the four years, I think we've really we've started honing in on something that looks like we really have a, a consistent model. Um, I think that what's nice is we always have the opportunity to revise and get better at it because we get student feedback, TA feedback, our own feedback, and then we kind of cycle around and redo it again. So I don't, I don't know. It, it we're definitely comfortable with how we're doing it now but it's it's a dynamic process it, yeah it's very much an iterative process yeah. so kind of big picture basically you know you have this giant course in front of you you have to say okay first I think the first thing is really what are the outcomes yeah. for every for every topic we're going to cover and for general biology that's anything in the life sciences because there are you know, two dozen courses that a student can go and take after general biology, and we need to prepare the students for any one of them, and if everything from genetics or ecology, evolution, animal science, anatomy and physiology, cell bio, anything. So we have all of this material. We have to say, what are the outcomes? What do the students need to be able to do when they get out our door that's going to allow them to be ready for whatever course is next? And then from there, it's kind of the double question of, Okay, what do we include in the lectures at that point? What's the actual curriculum look like? And then how do we assess that? And then once we decide on what the assessments look like, then we can kind of loop back around to design the active learning part around those specific assessments. How can we prepare students for those specific things that they're going to have to do? And um, each of those steps is kind of an ongoing thing. There's all these feedback loops constantly going on where, just to give you an idea every week, me, Christy, and Anne email back and forth about, okay, this is the lecture topic for this week. This is what we've done in the past. This is what we can add. This is what we can remove. That means we have to tweak these questions for the exams. And it's just kind of this constant feedback of this is what worked, this is what didn't. Let's try something slightly different. So this model that you just described with uh, starting with the outcomes and then looking at the assessments and, and having this iterative process seems like a great model for any course. Can you think of any particular problems or, or challenges that arise in having this model in such a large course with so many students and so much material that has to be covered? Yeah, one of the big challenges for us and something that we've been doing consistently for the last, this is the fourth year now, is removing material from the course. Um, because what we've been trying to emphasize since switching to the active learning model is the process of learning and being able to, given information you need to know, being self-sufficient enough to be able to incorporate that information effectively without you know, having to hear it multiple times in class from a quote-unquote tutor, whatever source you might otherwise use. And so we found that it's really helpful to remove a lot of information, not like a little bit. We're talking for some parts of the course, 10, 15% of the information we've removed over the last three years. And it's made it much smoother because that allows us to emphasize the connections and kind of the big picture ideas that we want to get across across a semester, which again, keeps students out of this idea of siloing the material. If you can emphasize the connections, they're more likely to see it that way. Yeah, I think that one, especially with some of the more uh, meaty topics that we've done in the past, by taking and picking one really solid model 
and saying, we are going to, we're going to look at this model and you're going to be able to use this model. Then once you have it down, you're going to be able to build these other things onto it. So when you take cell biology or physiology, you're going to use this as your building, your stepping stone. Um, and, and that way they learn how to apply and understand that information. I think that's a good role for us because they're going to hear all, all of this stuff later at some point, but if they can, can understand how to ask questions, how to think about relationships between these topics, they're 10 steps ahead of where they would be if they were just memorizing the information. So to give you a specific example, one of the topics we do in 116 every year is the endocrine system. And in the past, we had six or eight specific hormone pathways that we would look at. This part of the brain makes this, it goes through this, it signals this organ to have this result. We've cut that down by about half now and basically to specify, here's one type of pathway, here's a different type of pathway, because if you were to take anatomy and physiology or endocrinology, you're gonna get all that specific stuff. What I want you to be able to do, what we want you to be able to do, leaving general biology, is have a basic idea of how these pathways work in general. I don't care if you can tell me the order of organs that are affected by eight different pathways, as long as you understand how each type of pathway works, you'll be able to apply that to any pathway you're going to get in a subsequent course. And that's what we've tried to do topic by topic across the two semesters. So you're talking a lot about these, you know, these big picture ideas and understanding all the connections and taking this model and applying it in this other context. Um, and those seem like really important outcomes. But how do you begin to assess that? I mean, how do you test if a student knows how to ask questions or, or can you? We, we do have a, on our exams, we have what we call, we, we divide our exams into what we call upper and lower questions. So lower level questions are, are questions that are things like, uh, what, what is the endocrine system? Uh, what's an operon? Those kind of very basic or comparing very basic things. And then uh, the other half of the questions are asking things that maybe they haven't heard before. Um, hypothesize if we removed this part of the system, what would be the consequence? What would be the next logical step? And using those, we're starting to basically ask the, the questions of if you're faced with something you haven't seen before, can you make a decision on what would happen next? And, and we find that, that that takes a little bit of, you have to teach them a little bit how to read the question, like what, what are we really asking? But then they can think outside of the box, answer questions that they haven't seen before, and that's what we really want them to be able to do as they leave us and go into their jobs. So that's, we assess them by asking them questions around the pattern rather than memorizing the words and the definitions of things. Exactly. We have, um, we provide the list of, of what you're going to need to be able to do, the, the course outcomes, at the beginning of every class. We say, here are the outcomes for today's topic. And it's things like compare and contrast. So it'll be uh, compare and contrast, sticking with the endocrine system, water-soluble pathway versus lipid-soluble pathway. You know, that's not any specific piece of information in there. It's just how do these two pathways compare to each other? Um, and then we can ask questions that are specific to each outcome. So actually, when we put the exams together, each question has to be pegged to a specific outcome. So we'll have a question that's, um, or sorry, we'll have an outcome that's, you know, sequence cellular respiration. And then on the exam, the question for that outcome would be, put the following steps of cellular respiration in the correct order. I'm gonna give you four or five steps and you have to put them in the correct order. Or an outcome could be, uh, we have hypothesized now. Uh, so basically if you have a process or a system and you change it, hypothesize what would happen. So hypothesize the effects of 
you know, this enzyme being defective in cellular respiration, which of the following would happen in that case? So we're providing the information, but we're not specifically asking you what molecule does X. We're saying in this system, what happens if X doesn't happen? How does that affect the system as a whole? So it's the, the higher level understanding is what we're going for, which again, it's, it's not directly testing you on, do you know what all the words mean? But you can't answer those questions unless you know what the words mean. And, and that, was, that was specifically to address those AAAS requirements in their report. One of the things they found is students need to be able to, to um, they need to be able to, to put together concepts from different places and apply that information. And we want, to, we want to teach them the basics of how to do that because that's what they're really going to have to do in their real life. They're not going to go out and diagnose somebody with an illness and they're not going to give them a list of this could be three things when you open up the person. You're going to see a set of symptoms and have to, to diagnose that. And so we're, we're starting that with a very tiny framework. Every diagnosis will be only what we've covered, but it's a good start to thinking of how things connect as well. So I wonder, and, and I don't know if you can answer this, and it's, it's okay if you can't, um, these questions about uh, like hypothesize and things like that, how do you approach grading that? I mean, coming from someone who, who was never taught in, in a lab science, how do you grade someone's hypothesis? There are multiple choice questions. Okay. <laughs> so we give, them, we give them a set of possible, possible scenarios. Okay. So if you have a hypothesize, would the entire system shut down? Would uh, uh, the next step not occur? Would um, everything dissolve in water? And so each one of them, none of them are nonsense. Each one of them is a possible thing that could happen at some break in that system. What would be the next thing that would logically happen? So we, we do, it, there is a little bit of a tighter framework because you're absolutely right. If this was open-ended, you would have infinite answers. To We'd still questions. be grading the exams from 2014. Yeah. Now, I know you both mentioned that you weren't uh, part of this beginning process of the transformation. Um, but if you could talk even about this later iterative process where you're at, I, I'd like to know if there were any unforeseen or, or unexpected challenges that came with the transformation, maybe especially in terms of it being such a large course. One of the big ones I think that we've had to work through over the years, which was partially kind of on its way to being solved when we both came on board as lecturers was the underlying vocabulary. Just basic terms like outcomes and organizers. What do those mean in the context of an active learning environment? Um, and having to coordinate across three people doing lectures, a you know a director of assessment, a course director, 30 TAs, everyone needs to be on the same page with that vocabulary. And we found that getting everybody on the same page and taking uh, what is sometimes jargon from the field of education and assessment and applying it to a bunch of people that are not experts in that field and then also having students who are obviously not experts in that field also understand what all that terminology means, that's been a big uh, hurdle that I think we've gotten better at overcoming, but we're still refining year to year. We change what we call things just to see if we can get people to better understand what the purpose is. And to give you a specific example, every workshop we end with um, an activity that we say, okay, put everything away and, you know, blank whiteboard, blank piece of paper, recreate the thing you did today, the table or the flowchart or whatever, recreate it from memory. See if you can do it. You just did it 20 minutes ago. See if you can do it. And for years we were calling that a, a uh, it was a self-assessment? self-assessment. It was a self-assessment. Yeah. 
So it's good. I don't even know the yeah. old terminology anymore. <laughs> so we called it a self uh, self eval. It was oh, a self evaluation, and. It's like, okay, that's fine, but it's like kind of jargony and students like didn't really take it seriously. Uh, it was Dr. Keating had the brilliant idea, why don't we just call that a reality check? Do you actually know the stuff when you walk out the door or do you need to study more? And by calling it a reality check, that kind of changed how everybody approached just that one little piece. And so we've tried to do that kind of systemically to preserve the meaning of what we're going to do for each part of the course. Uh, but also make it understandable to people that are not experts in education and assessment in such a way that's going to promote buying in. The last big question that I have for you is whether you have any advice for uh, other departments, either at this university or at any other university, who have these kinds of big mega courses and are considering course transformation, is there anything that you've seen um, even in this this later end, this iterative process, or or if you're aware of things from from the beginning, or even in the sort of end product, I know you're still always uh, editing, but but the sort of final product, anything that's made it easier or or things to think about um, ahead of time. I I think that the biggest thing is to to know what your major goals are, and communicate with each other. So that when we sat down and we designed those outcomes, we picked every topic, so every lecture that we knew we were going to do. And we, the, what are the four or five things that we, if you had to take home just that pit, bit of information, what are the key bits of information? And when we identified those, we, we made a list. And I think it, over a course of a year, we kind of came up with the key ideas. Once we had those, then we had a framework to discuss what was important and then how they could connect across the course. The fact that we can sit down and, and we meet every week, we have a formal meeting, um, but we also talk on email. The, the fact that the three of us can sit down and discuss and pull things out and put things together and and uh, kind of feedback loop on ourselves has made it a, a much easier process so that communication and the outcomes give us a, a starting block for how to reorganize the course. Yeah, absolutely. The, the biggest thing is having a specific set of outcomes that you want everybody to be working towards. Once you can get, no matter how big the course is, in our case, three instructors, 30 TAs, once you can get everybody pointed in the same direction, that's most of the work right there. Uh, and then from there, it's a matter of being uniform about the vocabulary, making sure that people are being consistent in how the activities work. But those are things that you can work on almost week to week. Um, from a course design perspective, it's being consistent about outcomes, curriculum, and assessment. And once those things are in order across you know, whatever size course it is, then you can design the activities around that and implement it at whatever scale. Um, but all of that stuff is the details. It's that 30,000-foot it's that stuff that if that's not in place, then none of it's going to work. Great. Um, any last-minute thoughts uh, that you'd like to add that I haven't uh, already covered? Um, I think I'll just say that nobody should be um, like afraid to try to implement active learning. Um, it seems intimidating, I think, for two main reasons in my mind, which is that uh, one, it's just a big change from what almost everybody is used to. And two, in order to do it, as we've seen, you really are going to be teaching less material. There's going to just be less stuff in the course if you're setting aside time in some way for active learning. And I think we have to recognize that the trade-off there is a net positive in terms of what students are getting out of the course because they're going to retain and understand in a deeper way a much larger fraction 
of what it is that you're presenting in the course. So there are reasons that are perfectly rational for people to be hesitant, um, but I think on net, despite those challenges, it's 100% worth doing, even for a course of this size. Yeah, I, I, you know, even to add on that, the initial, the initial creation of the outcomes and the design is, is time heavy. But my day-to-day teaching load is much less now. I know exactly what I, I intend to say. I know what my, my goal two weeks from now is. So I know where I'm going to take this information. I know he's talking about the same thing at the same time. Um, and that, that makes my life much easier because I really do know what's going to happen every single time I go in there. And if we want to add something, we're flexible. But boy, just knowing where I'm going is helpful. My thanks again to today's guests, Dr. Dan Stern-Cardinal and Dr. Christy Beals. Any resources mentioned in this episode will be posted on our show notes, which are on our blog at tapruckers.wordpress.com. You can also find more information about the TAA project at tap.ruckers.edu. Keep up to date with the latest TAA project news by following us on Twitter or Facebook. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider sharing with a friend. Until next time, thanks for listening.